Elfie. Now that we're friends, I've decided to make you my new project. You really don't have to do that. I know. That's what makes me so nice. Whenever I see someone less fortunate than I, and let's face it, who isn't less fortunate than I, my tender heart tends to start to bleed. And when someone needs a makeover, I simply have to take over. I know, I know exactly what they need. And even in your case, Though it's the toughest case I've yet to face, don't worry, I'm determined to succeed. Follow my lead, and yes, indeed, you will be popular. You're gonna be popular. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio. It's this week on Broadway for Sunday, March 10th, 2019. Daylight Savings Time. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have a number of folks with us. Uh, Michael Portantier is with us. Jan Simpson is with us. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of arts and culture journalism program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Good morning, Jan. Morning. Also, uh, Peter is away this week. I forget where he went. He told me, but I forget where he went. But... He will be joining us in a little bit because Peter interviewed uh, Winnie Halsman, the book writer of Wicked, who's got a show coming up at 54 Below called Birds of Paradise. So we talk a little bit with Winnie about that, and Peter will have trivia at the end of the broadcast. When I see depressing creatures with unprepossessing features, I remind them on their own behalf to think and with us today, we have a very special guest. Winnie Holzman is uh, joining us by telephone from Los Angeles. Uh, Broadway fans know Winnie for uh, the book of Wicked, which is playing now and forever on Broadway. May it play forever. And um, she also has a special event coming up on March 18th at 54 Blows, where Wicked sings Birds of Paradise, which uh, Birds of Paradise was a 1987 off-Broadway musical. Winnie, thank you for joining us on Broadway Radio. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, I was very fond of Birds of Paradise when I saw it at the uh, Long Lost Promenade Theater. And uh, what I really loved about it is that it glorified community theater. And uh, I imagine you started uh, in community theater somewhere along the line. Is that true? Well, um, my, I do have one memory of going to um, a, an amateur theater group when I was when I was pretty young and and being very thrilled and taken with it. But I actually was doing more when I was a teenager. I was doing more like summer stock and stuff like that. I, mm-hmm. I guess that's a form of you know that's a form of community theater. I think <laughs> yeah. it was it was in it was in some of it was in a barn. Does that count? <laughs> I, I, I think so- it's pretty community. Yeah. Okay. Um, and do you remember, in fact, what that first show was that you saw in community theater? It was probably an adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, not uh-huh. 
not the right. Disney Beauty and the sure, Beast, but sure. you know, just a, a fairy tale that people were doing. And I just remember, you know, you know, I was stage struck, and I very much, you know, pretty soon after that, I started auditioning for summer stock companies and I, I did, like I said, I did worked in a barn theater in, um, I think was in Pennsylvania. And then I did, um, the UNH summer repertory theater, which is in New Hampshire. And, um, that was what started me off sort of acting wise. Um, and then, you know, writing's a whole other thing. It sure is. And here you were um, with the idea of adapting The Seagull very, very loosely. And uh, was it your idea? Was it David Evans' idea? Uh, somebody else entirely? I'm really not sure <laughs> because this was a while ago. But um, I think it might have been that we were just thinking and thinking. Uh, David and I were at the musical theater program at NYU, and we were – it was our job to come up with an idea for a musical. And I, you know, I've always loved Chekhov and I love the seagull. And I also grew up partly on shelter Island and um, uh, shelter Island is a very sort of remote Island. I don't know if they actually have a community theater there. I'm not sure that they do, but uh, the idea of, of a little community that was maybe struggling to put on a production of a musical version of the seagull, which is what our story is, uh, you know, it just, I guess it just struck us as both romantic and funny. Yes. And hopefully it, it's both. Well, it certainly is. And uh, you certainly have the archetypes there. Uh, Marjorie is the grand dame who gets all the leads. And we have uh, Dave, the high school music teacher, who has composed A Diva by December. Tell us what that musical yeah. is that Dave is uh, writing, A Diva by December. Well, it's... Um, what it is is that he just doesn't realize the way sometimes you don't that he has absolutely copied and plagiarized My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, it just hasn't occurred to him um, until until somebody points it out to him. But the but the but the real truth is is that there's something about the idea that that you know the, of doing something because you love it. The original title of the play of the musical was Amateurs. Mm-hmm. Um, the original title of our musical now now called Birds of Paradise, and um, the, just the idea of love and doing something for the love of it in a very pure way was what I think inspired us. And you know, then also the seagull, as we all remember, has a lot of unrequited love in it, and we mm-hmm. thought that would lend itself to singing. And in fact, it you know it kind of does. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Now the person who oh, points uh, this up, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just to give a little shout out that I don't know if I told you this, but Scott Schwartz, Stephen's son, who's a wonderful director and um, is the artistic director of the Bay Street Theater out in the Hamptons, he mm-hmm. he is directing the concert. Oh, how nice. Um, the- and we have a great cast. We have a beautiful cast, very, um, a wonderful, you know, array of Broadway actors. And you certainly had a, an, an array of actors who have done very well when you did that original production. I mean, Barbara Walsh later received yeah. a Tony nomination. Mary Beth Peel and Krista Moore now have two Tony nominations. Donna Murphy has won two Tonys, and J.K. Simmons even won an Oscar, right? Yeah. Oh, that was that was thrilling when J.K. won. Um, that was kind of like for character actors everywhere, wasn't it? It sure um, was. And- yeah, so we, we had an amazing cast back then, um, but, you know, it's, we're pretty excited about our, our cast for the concert. It's 
um, Brittany Johnson, who is understudying Glinda right now on Broadway, and uh, the wonderful Julia Murney and uh, Alex Wise, who's such a young, exciting talent. There's a bunch of great people. I agree. I have um, Kudish is in there. You have Bonnie Milligan. You have uh, Steve ah. Rowan. Uh, oh. And yeah. Andy Taylor and uh, Robert that's, W. Yeah. Schneider producing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good group. Yeah. Um, now, I'll never forget being in Minneapolis and going to see the movie Camp. And suddenly I'm hearing this song and I'm saying, wait a minute. I know this song. I know this song. And um, I truly believe that Imagining You is one of the most beautiful songs written in any off-Broadway musical. So uh, Todd Graff obviously got in touch with you yeah. and said, I want to do the song, right? Is that how it happened? Yeah, I mean, Todd starred in the original production that you were just talking about, you know, mm -hmm. at the promenade that Arthur Lawrence directed. Mm -hmm. um, Todd was the star. He played um, the young, you know, Constantine-like figure, um, mm -hmm. you know, inspired by Constantine and the seagull. And, um, it, of course, we were more than thrilled. To ha I mean, it was thrilling to have him put that song in, in the movie. And it was just kind of a wink to us and also just very special to have it memorialized in that way. Um, and sort of a funny moment, too. <laughs> I remember it because people were, I think that he had a great line where people were listening to it for a while. And, and one of the kids says, what is this? Uh, <laughs> it's quite a beautiful song so uh and uh the other thing uh you mentioned arthur lawrence getting involved and that of course happened because he would come to the nyu musical theater uh program right and he would uh give advice yeah, he was, well he was more than just giving advice he and um, others, including leonard bernstein and sondheim um and and um um uh Comden Green, they were all actually teaching us. Julie Stein, they were on the faculty the year that the the two years that David and I were there. And I know that sounds, you know, just like a dream that somebody mm -hmm. might have. But the truth is that they were our teachers, and they were incredibly generous. I mean, more generous than it's possible to express. Because, you know, as you well know, they were not all in retirement at that point. They were all That's busy right. doing other things. Sure, sure. But they gave they gave a lot of time to us as students. It wasn't a one off. It was like they were they would come in week after week and really give us assignments and really work with us. In fact, there's a little there's a little anecdote about Demon Sondheim that um, David is going to tell um, at the concert. I'll just tease that if people mm -hmm. want to come. Um, mm -hmm. It's just kind of sweet and something that happened between the three of us. Um, so, and, and very, and that was very meaningful to us as young writers. So, um, if people want to hear that little story, <laughs> they can come to 54 Below on, on Monday the 18th. So now, um, I'm getting the impression, and this is what I've always imagined, and you'll tell me if I'm right, that little by little, Arthur Lawrence got more and more and more interested in this, but who actually said, yes. Arthur, will you direct? Or did he say, Hey, would you like me to direct? Which happened? It was the latter. It, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, we would never have presumed. It, it just in our wildest dreams, you know, everything he was doing for us and with us, we were really grateful and we would never have asked for more. Mm -hmm. um, but he, yeah, he just kind of, I think he just kind of 
honestly fell in love with it a little bit mm-hmm. and he, he, he just uh, had to direct it <laughs> and um that's you know that's what happened and uh, of course it was a long process as you might imagine you know we, worked on, that, yeah. we worked on it for years yeah exactly mm-hmm. and um you know speaking of that david and i david recently found three songs that were cut uh from from the show after it was done in Cincinnati, because we had a, a tryout that Arthur did not direct, but a, a good friend of mine directed in Cincinnati. And um, uh, we, David recently found these songs that we had forgotten about, and we're going to also feature them in the concert. Um, oh, nice. People will hear them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, they're not just songs. They're we really like them. They're good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure we will too. Uh, what's really nice, of course, is that you're not here spoofing community theater because it's very nice late in the show when Lawrence Wood, the man who has been a Broadway actor and has had a bit of a career in New York, has um, decided to direct this show in a strange way. It was uh, mirroring uh, the type of thing that Arthur Lawrence would do, and when he says to Homer at the end. Um, you have no idea how precious this is, what you've got here in this place with these people. And I think that's really quite a lovely line. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for quoting it. I'm I'm t- very touched. I mean, that, that definitely came from my heart. You know, uh, there's, there's nothing like people getting together and, and wanting to create something just for the sheer love of it that has nothing to do with anything and actually that's sort of what we're doing here believe it or not <laughs> with this concert because because um we just wanted to to work on it again and and hear it again and um I'm, we're so grateful that 54 below wanted to do that because it's 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 really been fun to get get together again and 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 work on it um you know working on something is probably the best it's the best of all, isn't it? Sure, sure. And, uh, of course, uh, it was kept alive because of that original cast album. I imagine you were at the recording session? Oh, yeah. That was an all-day affair. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess they usually are, right? Sort of all day and all, all evening. Um, and very emotional for all of us. But it was, I mean, thank God we have that. That's you really bet. been... A saving grace, yeah. Sure it is, yeah, because that's what makes uh, companies want to do shows when they hear the cast album. So now, of course, uh, as we all know, the show didn't run as long as we uh, would all hope it uh, would or as long as it deserved to. So when it closed, um, did you have any idea (laughs) possibly that you would in uh, a decade or so later be writing one of the most famous shows (laughs) in the history of Broadway? (laughs) The answer would be no. I had no idea. What's less than no? <laughs> I, had, yes. I had zero idea. Yeah, yeah. But it's all worked out, hasn't it? It's all worked out. Yes, it has worked out beautifully, yes. So, well, all right. We're looking forward to coming to 54 Below and seeing Birds of Paradise. It won't be long now, March 18th. Uh, two shows, uh, one at 7, one at 9.30. And uh, we hope to see everybody there. Thank you so much. Okay, in our interview section, Michael, Jan, and I got a chance to see Superhero, which is running at second stage. So, uh, Jan, why don't you tell us a little bit about Superhero? Well, I think people um, have been really excited about this show because the book is by John Logan, who won the Tony for Red, Um, and the music book 
uh, lyrics and uh, music are by Tom Kitt, who won both a Tony and a Pulitzer Prize for Next to Normal and has worked on lots and lots of musicals. Uh, It's the story of a kid named Simon whose father has died in, we're led to believe, in a terrible accident, and his mother and he are still dealing with their grief, but dealing with it in separate ways. Uh, And Simon is a real comic book fanatic, particularly uh, superheroes he's interested in. And they're living in this apartment building, a new mysterious neighbor has moved in and Simon believes that the neighbor might actually be a real life superhero and that's the plot uh, this show for me uh, just lacked energy uh, It, I was just so surprised that Logan had written the book it seemed a little bit all over the place, not sure of 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 what it wanted to say. Um, the only saving graces for me were uh, that the character, the, the the boy, was played by a, a young man named Kyle MacArthur, whom I I don't know, but the mom was played by Kate Baldwin. And the mysterious neighbor was played by Bryce Pinkham. And they were both, I thought, an excellent voice um, and did excellent jobs fleshing out really sketchy characters. Uh, unfortunately for me, the music, literally by the time I walked out of the door at second stage, I'd forgotten all of the music. Nothing uh, stuck in my head. I it could have been a non-musical uh, as far as it went for me. So I'm afraid this is like a thumbs down for me. You guys? Michael, what did you think? Oh, um, I had very, very mixed feelings. I had, uh, right before I saw the show, for some reason, I was starting to hear very bad things from several people who had seen it. And I thought, oh, gee, that's unfortunate. Um so maybe it was partly lowered expectations. I uh, I went in and the show started and the first few numbers I really did not like. And I couldn't believe how similar it was to Dear Evan Hansen um, in, the, in the beginning. I mean, here you have this very unhappy kid with this very troubled relationship with his mom. And mm-hmm. it's a, uh, you know, it's a single parent family and, uh, and even, and, you know, it's all this angst between them. And I, and I specifically cannot believe that they actually called this character, Simon Branson, which not only rhymes, <laughs> not, not only rhymes, but scans with Evan Hansen. I mean, you, you would right. think, I mean, I don't know. I do not know the timeline of the writing of this of this show. Uh, but but regardless, you would think that wouldn't you think they would have changed it a little bit, his name a little bit at some point, Great uh, point. you know. So, so why they did not do that is beyond me. I, I actually didn't notice. Um, I don't remember if if the the words Simon Branson are, are mentioned once or more in the lyrics. Uh, but even if they were, you know, and, and that's why they kept it, they they still could have changed it to something that that 
didn't scan or rhyme quite like that. Um, so I really, I really did not like the first few numbers. But then I, I guess when the Bryce Pinkham character entered, um, I, I thought it started to become a lot more interesting and, and a very different story from, uh, from Dear Evan Hansen. And I guess I loved – I basically loved um, – most of this, the first act after the the first few numbers, and by the end of the first act, I really was kind of loving the show. I, I, wow. I yeah, I, I guess I disagree about the the songs. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say they're like incredibly memorable and and have stuck in my brain, but I thought they were all uh, dramatic, and I liked. Um, uh, for the most part, I think that Tom Kitt did a, a very good job in writing the lyrics. Uh, at this his first effort in that area. He, he's in the past. He's he's been always just uh, a composer writing just the music to other people's lyrics, inclu- including, of course. Um, Next to normal, and uh, and if then also you know in, in all of his other shows. So I thought that they again not not terrific, great, fabulous lyrics, but I but I thought they were solid and they told the story. I, I'm uh, and yeah, I was really really with it until um, the end of the first act. But then I thought act two started to become very confused, and uh, so they kind of lost me again and 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 uh, but then it went back and started going back and forth it seemed to me like something that um should have had more uh development or workshopping and again i i do not know the history i don't know how it long it was developed at yale okay thanks it was developed developed there i i'm i'm told it had a very uh different ending um the mother uh, when it was uh, done at Yale, was a nurse instead of an adjunct professor. Uh, so there oh, were no. changes. Evan Hansen's change. mother's a nurse. Uh, <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Oh my God. <laughs> maybe the lawyers. The lawyer stepped in and said, "You got to change some of this." <laughs> So they recognized part of the problem, but uh, but not all of it. Um, what else? There were other little things. I uh, I was um, amused and kind of annoyed by the fact that this character that Simon is uh, has created, you know, his this comic book character that he sketches and this you know that he's writing the story of is called the Amazing Sea Mariner. Well, that's – unfortunately, sea mariner is a tremendously redundant phrase. Mariner means sailor. So sea mariner means means sea sailor. You know, it would be like saying sky flyer or something like that. Um, so I, I was surprised that they uh, that they didn't catch that. I mean, and I guess it's a takeoff on the submariner. But submariner doesn't have the word sea in it. So that, that was surprising to me. Um, but I uh, – did really like the performances of mm-hmm. of the leads and uh and uh, yes and and specifically uh well well all of them but Carl MacArthur to me was really wonderful because he really did seem he came across as credibly very young I, I don't know his actual age and I thought he had a beautiful voice and I uh, but 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 even the just the fact that he was so credibly um, a teenager what to me was tremendously important because so so often we uh, you know for obvious reasons we see actors who are obviously older and I think it loses something when that happens um, 
but Kate Baldwin, I, I thought was really quite wonderful. I one of, one of the best things I've seen her in. And Bryce Pinkham, I you know I just think he is so terrific. And this role is is rather difficult. Uh, it, it, it must be quite difficult to play because this character, um, you know, who turns out to be the superhero is um, he, he, you know, as a, as a, in his human guise, he's very, very withdrawn and, uh, and kind of antisocial and, and awkward. And until he's brought out of his shell by, by Simon and, and his mother. Um, so, you know, it's not easy to play that on stage, but I thought he did a beautiful job of it. And, um, there were uh, in Act One. There were a couple of a couple of brief special effects that I thought were tremendously effective. I thought it would have been nice to have maybe at least one in Act Two. Um, the ending of the show, I'm not sure how I, I feel about it. I, I respect it, but I thought it was maybe a little more downbeat than it could have been, uh, and it and not as exciting as it could have been. Um, but anyway, I uh, so I had I wound up having very very mixed feelings about the whole show. Here here's a, an interesting just little side point. Uh, Bryce Pinkham uh, showed in I think his Broadway debut in Ghost the Musical. Yeah, uh, I mean that was some years ago. But he uh, to 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 be uh, frank, he has one of the best physiques that I've ever seen on Broadway. And so I was expecting him to turn up in like. <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> and like, you know, superhero spandex at some point. <laughs> uh, and I, I almost thought that, well, you know, that's probably one reason why they cast him, aside from the fact that, that he's such a great actor and singer. But that never happened. And in fact, um, it's established uh, in the show briefly that when uh, this character uh, turns into his superhero guys. He 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 assumes the uh, the form of of, of uh, a bolt of energy rather than uh, you know some guy in a, in spandex. Which you know I mean honestly when you think about it uh, that that that's such a time honored trope to have a, a hero in in a in a costume <laughs> you know whether it's Superman or Batman or you know but it probably doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Well, uh, I I think they wanted to go. Uh, contrary to that entirely, because one of oh, my sure. problems with the score is that there was nothing superheroish about the score, and you just sort of want something anthemic if it's going to be a superhero show. Oh, absolutely! I mean, they were going counter. Yeah, they they were really working against that whole mm-hmm. that whole mythos and and presenting this superhero as this, you know, very flawed, uh, awkward guy, and uh, who, you know, who's and even his backstory was um, was so much darker uh, than a lot of the the superhero backstories. So uh, I I you know I I really admire the effort here. I and I think a lot of it worked, but a lot of it didn't. I just as I said, wish that maybe they had uh, workshopped it more. Uh, and uh, d- directed by Jason Moore, by the way, who mm-hmm. I think did, did did quite a good job, but maybe a little more guidance from him in terms of dramaturgy and, and steering some of the story in, in a different direction would have been beneficial. What do you think, James? 
For fear of uh, saying ditto to Michael Portantier, as soon as I came out of Superhero, uh, somebody had asked me on Facebook what I thought, and I wrote that it has promised, but it's not there yet. The mm-hmm. book and direction are problematic. The cast is awesome. So I'm, I'm right there mm-hmm. with Michael and you, Jan, that... I think this is a diamond in the rough. It's really good. This uh, production of Superhero needs uh, the uh, our superhero uh, called Broadway Man, the book doctor. Uh, and I, I really feel as though that maybe they pulled it out of the oven too soon or with kid gloves because the 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 writers of this thing are so well acclaimed that maybe nobody told them that they need to make changes. Hmm. Um, yeah, maybe. Mm. I, I, but I yeah. am I really am mystified by the Simon Branson Evan Hansen thing. I mean they must be aware of Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. <laughs> Jan, when 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 was the uh Yale workshop? Do you know? I think maybe three, four years ago. Yeah. I feel like Superhero was has been around uh before the the much acclaim of Evan Hansen at second stage in the same exact space. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, so surely, uh, it has undergone some, some changes, uh, as described previously, but, uh, it really needs, uh, another workshop. It really needs to, uh, that opening number was, uh, I felt exactly like Michael, the first couple of numbers, I was like, oh, this is going to be a mess. Then halfway through the first act, I was like, oh, this is getting much better. This yes. is really, but that opening, the opening number was a, a disaster and... <laughs> Also, another uh, related to that, just one other problem I noticed is that his um, his relationship with his mother really seemed to just be changing on a dime. Uh, in the beginning, it was very, very fraught and you know very kind of unhappy in the Dear Evan Hansen way. And then for a while, it seemed like he was oh you know maybe not. He seems like a pretty well adjusted kid, and and everything is happy. And but then they kept going back to the death of his father and. I, 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 it just seemed a little schematic to me the way they kept flipping back and forth with that. So if they do give it another pass, I think that's something they might want to work on a little bit more. I wish I wish they had left up in the air whether or not Bryce Pinkham's character was truly yes. a superhero. Yes, if they exactly. had left that up in the air, mm-hmm. was this something that the kid was just imposing on him because he really needed mm-hmm. that? Yes, or was yes. he truly a super? If there had been that ambiguity, I, I think it would have added some tension, uh, dramatic tension to the show. Yeah, I thought that that they might have gone that way also. But the first special effect, which proves that he's a superhero, happens maybe like 15 minutes into the show. So they decided to go a different way with it. Mm-hmm. I also think it probably gave Bryce Pinkham a little bit more a character development there. Uh, he yeah. he didn't have much to play until, mm-hmm. in, in, until that. Yes. But, um, yeah. And then Bryce's speech about... Uh, you know, I only get to save half of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, your superhero at second stage. Uh, what a cast! What, what a cast! A, what a cast! Uh, if only go go see the cast, who is a lot of fun. Um, and there are some good nuggets in the show, and hopefully they will, you know, bring it back in and start working on it again, and we'll we'll see it in another incarnation. I hope so. All right, Michael and Jan both got to see Seawall, A Life. So, uh, Michael, why don't you tell us about this? 
Yeah, these are two monologues uh, being presented at the public theater. Uh, <clears throat> the first one is Seawall by Simon Stevens. And the, uh, the one actor featured in that is Tom Sturridge in the role of Alex. And the second one is A Life by Nick Payne. And the one actor in that is Jake Gyllenhaal as uh, – I'm sorry. Abe. Abe. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have my my light just went out here, um, and the uh, these were not r originally written to be performed together, um, but they kind of work well together in the sense that they're on the same very general theme of loss, and also uh, timing wise, each one of them is about forty five minutes, so it makes for a, a a nice length of an evening if you do one and then have an intermission and then do the other. Uh, I thought that uh, both the writing and the acting were excellent. I had some issues with the writing, especially in the first one, uh, this story that, uh, that Alex played by Tom Sturridge tells, uh, which involves a tragedy. Uh, and I, I won't say any more. Um, I thought that there was, uh, something that, that was done in the writing that was rather unfair, uh, during much of the first part of this piece, he is speaking in present tense about something that really is already in past tense. And I thought that that wasn't maybe 100% fair because the audience is kind of relaxing uh, because they, they hear him talking about this thing in present tense and, and thinking, well, oh, so it's not going to be that. There's not going to be something uh, bad that happens in, in terms of that person uh but but it's quite the opposite is the case so i'm not sure if if that's if that is fair or not I'll, i'd like to hear other your, your thoughts on it um the second play uh i i thought maybe was better written in terms of not having a, a flaw like that it did go back and forth um between two basic two subjects uh and for me occasionally the timeline was a little uh well the timeline and also the focus was a little uh difficult to determine because sometimes the the the, the flips back and forth were very quick and uh and i'm sure that was all intentional but i had a little bit of a problem with that um it really kept jake gyllenhaal on his toes i would say um and I uh, – oh, by the way, at one point um, during the intermission, one of the, uh, one of the ushers at the public theater at the Newman came over and was kind of checking our row, our row uh, and making sure that people uh, didn't have like – their bags and the you know at their feet in front of them etc and and a woman near me joked that uh, she's like oh what is Jake going to come and sit next to me or something like that uh, well that didn't happen but he did walk through our row uh, so he was right in front of me uh, very briefly at one point and I I'm, I imagine it's the same row every night because. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's predetermined and, and, you know, so the usher can check it. So I don't know if you want to do your research and find out what row that is. 
and uh, or if it changes from night to night if you want to if you want to be really really close to Jake Gyllenhaal for a moment uh, but yeah, good, I think good luck getting a ticket mm-hmm. well well yes <laughs> and then picking the row <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Step step one is getting any ticket at all. Um, uh, yeah, and and that is, uh, I, I mean, fine with me because Jake Gyllenhaal's star power. I think it's, I think it's really well earned. I think he has uh, made some very admirable choices as far as the shows, the the shows, the plays, the and the musicals uh, that he's done. Uh, in recent years. So I, I don't think he's sold out in any way, shape or form. I, I really admire that. Uh, so very good for him. And Tom Sturridge, um, I think, uh, I'm less, somewhat less familiar with him, but he was really excellent. I thought in 1984 on stage, even though somewhat miscast according to, uh, uh, past perceptions of what that character in 1984, is supposed to be. Uh, I, I, I thought he he did a really excellent job in that. So I um, I wish him the best also, and I'm glad to see them both on stage, and I'm glad it's a hit for the public. All right, Jan, what did you think? I enjoyed it. I it was a good evening of theater. I don't think I, I it was one of the best things I've seen this season, but it was certainly far from the worst. Um, the seawall uh, was written by Simon Stevens, but um, a life was written by Nick Payne, and uh, so we have two different uh, authors brought together, and each of these playwrights has worked with each of these actors in uh, previous shows. The uh, seawall, the character that. Tom Sturridge plays, it's a much more uh, subdued, internal uh, character. And I think, at least at the performance I attended, a little more difficult for the audience to really go with him. There seemed to be sort of a distance between between the story that he was telling and the audience response to it. Uh, I don't know if it's just because of Gyllenhaal's uh, star power and uh, personal magnetism, but I felt the audience, or the fact that he ran through the audience, but I felt that the audience was leaning uh, more in. One of the connective threads that ties this uh, show together is the relationship between fathers and children. Uh, and we don't we don't see that explored a lot uh, in theater, and so it was very interesting to get these two different, both British playwrights, uh, they're wrestling with these bonds between uh, fathers and 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 children uh, in uh, on both ends, both when a man looks at his relationship with his own parent and when he looks at his relationship with his children we, uh, we get uh all of that and so it was a it was a good uh evening in the theater excellent performances from both actors all right so that is uh seawall of life at the public theater um there are basically no tickets available, so uh, <laughs> write a ten thousand dollar check to the public, and maybe you'll get one seat. To they'll sneak you in a folding chair in the back. So, 
Next. That is almost literally true. The no, woman, no, that is literally true. That <laughs> the is... woman that I was seated next to had gotten her tickets at the last minute, and she uh, was very open about the fact that, not that she'd written a big check, but that she had used all of her connections, and she had considerable connections to get a ticket. So either write that big check or know some really important people. Yeah, no, the uh, uh, a couple seasons ago, the, the uh, was it called Powder, the Claire Danes play? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I, I know some Wall Streeters who uh, wrote big checks to go see that when it was totally sold out, and they were they wrote big checks and they were given a folding chair in the aisle, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they were like, you know. Uh, they're like, yeah, I wrote a big check and I get a folding chair. You know, what's up with that? You know, I was like, well, maybe they should have given you the couch on stage, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So to the, um, from downtown to the edge of uptown on the Upper West Side, uh, Jan got a chance to see Mary's Seacole, Mary's plural Seacole at Lincoln Center Theater. So Jan, tell us about this. This is a really interesting show. It's written by the playwright Jackie Sibley, uh, Sybil's Jury. And uh, she, her profile was uh, raised last year when her show Fairview was such a big uh, sensation down at uh, Soho Rep. And just this past week, Fairview won the Susan Smith Blackburn play uh, prize for um, the best play by a female playwright in the past year that was written in the English language. So uh, she's really hot. And people who missed Fairview last summer, it's coming back in June. It's going to be at Theater for a New Audience's Polanski Center uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, so there was uh, a lot of uh, anticipation for this new show, which is at Lincoln Center's LCT3. It's small theater on uh, uh, the roof. And Drury is a, a very rigorous, intellectual playwright on the order of Carol Churchill. I'm not saying she's achieved yet the accomplishment, the magnitude, but her plays are heady, they play with structure, they're very um, uh, intellectual as well as emotional in the way that Churchill's plays are. This one is about a real-life woman named Mary Seacole, not Mary's, one Mary, Mary Seacole, who was the daughter of um, a black Jamaican woman and a white Scottish man born in the early part of the 19th century. And it I'd never heard of her, but it turns out that she is very famous in Britain because like Florence Nightingale, she knows uh, nurse soldiers during the Crimean War uh, in the 1850s. Uh, it seems that she actually applied to Florence Nightingale to work with her. Florence Nightingale makes a brief appearance in this play, and Nightingale turned her down. And so Seacole just raised her own money, went out to Crimea and nursed soldiers there, and is revered in uh, Britain to this day. There's a statue to her for uh, doing so. 
But this is not a straightforward bioplay because that is not what Drury does. This play takes place in the past where we meet uh, C. Cole and we learn about her story, but also in the present. It's really a show that's dealing about women as caregivers, who takes care of people in our society, which classes do, which races do, which genders do. There are six women uh, in the play. They all play uh, different characters. They are very different themselves, the actresses, in terms of their ages, their races, their sizes. Uh, they are led by Quincy Tyler Bernstein, who plays Mary Seacole. And the Marys, the plural, is getting at the idea that women uh, fulfill this, this caring role. Uh, and that, in essence, they are all Marys, caregivers, care tenders. It's um, very, it, it's thought-provoking, it's engaging, it's wonderfully well-acted. It's directed by Liliana Blaine-Cruz, uh, who is also uh, an experimental kind of director, and I can see where this was just up her alley. And I thought I think it's one of the best things she's uh, directed. This was just really a match of playwright and uh, director. And so it's um, very lively, very entertaining. The only men in the play are played by dummies. Uh, and uh, that's really sort of interesting the way that that's uh, uh, done. Uh, it's a very thought-provoking and interesting uh, evening. I can't say that I loved it, but I don't know that that jury necessarily wants you to love her work. I think she wants you to really think about, uh, debate, discuss her work uh, once you've seen it. And I have to say, I am eager to see uh, what she does next because she's a very, very interesting playwright. All right. So that is Mary C. Cole at Lincoln Center Theater, LCT3, the Claire Tau. Uh, get up to the roof, hang right. out. You know, a little cold, little cold this time of year, but it's okay. <laughs> it's through April 7th. So April there's 7th, uh, yeah. Yeah, so there's time. All right. Uh, so we're going to uh, drive down 9th Avenue and make <laughs> a left on... Uh, 44th or yeah 44th because 43rd you can't turn left on and uh michael got a chance to get back to second stage where we just talked about superhero a little bit before but for a monday evening performance called musical mondays for the last five years benefit concert starring jason robert brown so michael tell us about this evening and i hate you <laughs> yeah, well, um, actually, this was a kind of unusual situation where I got to see the set of Superhero before I saw the show, oh. because <laughs> this uh, this concert was done on the set, uh, and it was uh, a few nights before I saw the show. Uh, this was Jason Robert Brown's The Last Five Years, uh, starring Jason Robert Brown and Shoshana Bean. Um, 
I love this musical. I have loved it ever since it first appeared. Uh, I did get a chance to see Jason himself uh, sing the role of Jamie quite a few years ago. Uh, as as aficionados know, uh, the, the musical is somewhat loosely based on the story of Jason's relationship with his first wife, uh, his ex-wife. And uh, so he uh, has sung the role before, and he did it again as a benefit for Second Stage. They're doing a, a series of um, Monday night concerts of shows that they have done before. Uh, I know they have a Saturday night coming up, I believe tomorrow night. And um, I, I actually don't have the, the rest of the list in front of me, but they, you should check that out because it's an opportunity to see, um, you know, some, some really good shows that they've done there before just revived for, for one night only in concert form. Um, I was really well, I didn't. I was. I would say I was looking forward to this performance, but I wasn't because I didn't think I was going <laughs> until a friend uh, happened to give me tickets at the very last minute because he had uh, he had a conflict, and so I really appreciate that because it is uh, it is a favorite score of mine. I think it's a beautiful piece. Uh, maybe not one hundred percent successful, but so close that. Uh, you know, uh, that, uh, that I really have always loved it. And, and again, as, as I'm sure many, many of our listeners know, it tells the story of the relationship and marriage of Jamie and Kathy, um, the five-year relationship and marriage, but the, the gimmick, uh, you know, and I hate, hesitate to use that term because it, it works so well is that the stories are told on different timelines. Uh, from Kathy's point of view, we see the relationship from the end to the beginning. And from Jamie's point of view, we see it from the, from the beginning to the end. And uh, each of them are sort of in their own space. They, they never interact except in, in one song in the be in the in the middle of the action which is the uh the point at which jamie proposes to kathy while they are on a on a boat on the lake in central park and that is where the stories cross uh after that point uh well i mean they're still moving in the same direction but now it's uh, you know jamie is moving more towards the uh, the end, you know, uh, towards the end, the very sad ending of their romance, and Kathy is getting happier and happier as she's moving. We see her moving towards the beginning, and every subsequent song is either earlier or later in the action. If uh, <laughs> uh, it sounds a little difficult when you try to explain it, but if you've seen it, it makes perfect sense. And this is tremendously moving to see. Uh, to see the stories played out that way. I, I, I think we're all familiar with many other shows that play with time in one way or another. Of course, most famously, Merrily We Roll Along moves uh, backward in time, but steadily backward in time. Uh, and then we have other, many other shows where um, you will have various scenes uh, flashing forward and then, and then flashing back. But I, I don't know of any other show where one character is moving forward while the other one is moving back. And I think it, 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 it was a master stroke of an idea, uh, but it wouldn't have worked if the quality of the music and lyrics weren't so great, uh, as Jason Robert Brown provided here. So, so I, 
I have always and will always will love this show. I think that um, there's a quite a wonderful film version of it uh, with Jeremy Jordan and Anna Kendrick as the two uh, the two central characters. Uh, and again, not maybe not 100 percent perfectly, absolutely successful, but so much so much richness in it and so much emotion and beauty that I think it has to be seen. Um, I am glad that I got to see Jason sing this role, not once, but twice. And he really does have an excellent voice. He started out in, in piano bars, uh, you know, as a singer pianist, I, I think, don't tell mama was one of his places and uh so it's not like he's just a composer who sings a little bit he really has an excellent voice uh and shoshana bean uh i guess really needs no introduction one of one of the one of the best broadway voices of the past several couple of decades and uh she um, just was really amazing as Kathy. And I think that a lot of the audience was there for her and deservedly. So she had quite a triumph. They both did. And I, I, I think this is a wonderful idea of second stages. And uh, I'm very, very, very glad that I unexpectedly had a chance to be there. So uh, a few quick things before we move on. Uh, people wonder uh, what this is about and why Second Stage is doing Musical Mondays and things like that. It's part of a $65 million effort to secure, you know, their first uh, permanent home, and uh, that's the Hayes on on Broadway. And they outline the $65 million, how it's spent. It costs $28.5 to purchase. It costs $22 million to renovate. And then they have a new American Voices Fund for $14 million, um, that is basically in support of the ongoing operations of this. So, uh, you know, uh, it's it, it's expensive to run a theater. So. <laughs> yes, and may I say, I, I again, I, I'm using this term uh, admiration s- several times in this podcast, but I really do admire Second Stage because unlike some other theaters, uh, they really – spend a lot of their effort and money on new works. Uh, I mean, most of it. The, 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 this, is, this is kind of an anomaly uh, for them to revisit things like this, but they're doing it for, for the best reasons, to raise money so they can continue to do lots of wonderful new works. So I, I really, really admire them for that. Yeah, the guys who are over at Roundabout are like, hey, uh, second stage, you keep doing some revivals and we might start developing new plays. <laughs> Be unfortunate if we well, develop new plays on you, you know? Well, Roundabout, that's what it's supposed to yeah. do. That's its name, Roundabout. Well, I, uh, I don't know about that, but anyway. That's... <laughs> no, that is their mission. That yeah. was their founding mission. What was? Uh, to... to bring back shows. That yeah, was roundabout. the founding mission. Oh, okay. All right. I'm not sure that I realized or remembered that. Yeah, no, that's that's part of the roundabout mission, yeah. So, uh, and and one quick question. I, I might have missed it. You might have said it. If you did, I apologize. Did did Jason, uh, how was this set up? Was there a oh. pian- piano on stage? Did Jason just sit at the piano and play, or did he act, or did he emote, or were there two microphones, or what? how was it? Yeah, I'm sorry. They, they all of, I think all of these are going to be concert 
complete concert versions, not even staged concerts, because as I said, they're yeah. being done on the on the set of Superhero. So yes, Jason was at a grand piano and he played and sang and Shoshana uh, for the most part sat on a, on a stool and they did have I, I should have mentioned they did have the full complement of orchestration that we have always heard the beautiful orchestrations for this piece uh, so it was uh, Jason at piano then there was guitar bass uh, someone on cello one celeste and percussion someone else on cello two and percussion and someone else on violin and percussion uh, beautiful beautiful sound and a very very full lovely sound so that was the setup wow it's uh musical monday jason and uh and shoshana and a great show it's like having your cake and eating it too yeah oh nice segue <laughs> so Jan, you had some cake up at Manhattan Theater Club on uh, stage one. So tell us about uh, the Becca Brunstetter play, The Cake. Uh, this is a play written by, as you say, uh, Becca Brunstetter. Uh, she is one of the writers on the hit television series on NBC, This Is Us. Uh, and she is also the daughter of uh, a Republican uh, official, I don't remember what his title is, in, I believe, South Carolina. And her father is uh, an outspoken opponent of same-sex marriage. And she wrote this play in part to convince her father of uh, the rightness of uh, being more tolerant and open uh, to uh, people's love. And what she did was she uh, adopted, in a way, the story of the Supreme Court case of the baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple because he said it violated uh, his religious principles. And in this play, uh, there is a baker in South Carolina. She, her name is Della. She owns a place called Della's Sweet Shop. She's played by uh, Deborah Jo Rupp and played delightfully. I want to just get that out there by Deborah Jo Rupp. And her uh, goddaughter, the daughter of her best friend, her best friend has died, has returned to town to get married. And so she comes to Della's shop and she says, Della, I want you to make my cake. And of course, Della is very excited about uh, this young uh, woman's uh, marriage. Her name is uh, uh, Jenny is what uh, Della calls her, but she now calls herself Jen. She lives in Brooklyn. She lives in New York, but she's always wanted to get to have a big marriage, big wedding at home in South Carolina. And so Della wants to know, of course, who's the lucky guy? And it turns out that the lucky guy is a woman, a woman named Macy. Uh, and upping the ante, she is an African-American woman named Macy. And this, of course, gives Della pause. And so the question for her is whether or not she's going to make this cake for this girl that she really loves. She 
considers a daughter. Della herself is childless. She was never able to have a child. And so this is, in essence, her daughter. Uh, and because her best friend is dead, this is the she's the surrogate mother of this child. And yet she is a very religious woman. Uh, and she's not sure she can do this. I'm making this sound as though it is a drama, and it is not. It is a comedy. It is played very much as a comedy. In fact, at the same time that Della is trying to make up her mind about this, she's getting ready to uh, appear on a version of the uh, great British baking something. There's a television show. That, bake Off. I think it's Bake yes. Off. Yeah, that people, <laughs> that people love. And Della has been chosen to be on an American version, and she's very excited. And as a matter of fact, as the show opens, she is practicing and tell, telling us in the audience, but we're also supposed to be standing in for her uh, television audience how to make the perfect cake and how to ice it and what you should do and how you should deal with the ingredients. And so her preparation and her thoughts about the cake, some of them a little surreal, are uh, embedded in the play and they're alternate scenes where she's preparing and then alternate scenes where she's dealing with uh, Jen and Jen's fiance, uh, Macy, and also dealing with her husband. The play, it's a comedy, and so the play has uh, a happy resolution. I'm not going to say exactly what that happy resolution is, but it has a happy resolution, and it seems to make uh, a lot of people quite happy. Some friends have uh, told me how um, much they enjoyed the show, but Although I have not seen the movie Green Book, which won the Oscar uh, this year, it seems to me from what I've read and heard about it that Green Book has a really kind of, can we all get along? Yes, we can. We can all get along uh, approach to its movie. And that's the same approach to this um this play uh, that if you just get to know one person and develop a relationship, then all will be right with the world. Um, we know that's not true. The Supreme Court ruled that the baker didn't have to bake the cake. Um, and the fact that it really doesn't dig into these issues in a realistic way. Uh, Della, again, is presented as really an enchanting person and really, again, delightfully played by uh, Deborah Jo Rupp. But the other characters really sort of serve just as her foils. In some instances, they're not believable at all. Uh, particularly the uh, African-American woman. Um, she just comes off as really kind of rude and shrill and uh, not pleasant really at all uh, for most of the play. And it was a disappointment to me because I thought 
this I'd read about this play. I've been waiting to see this play for a number of years. Um, uh, I don't know how it first came across my radar screen, but the idea of engaging with this really important subject, I was so looking forward to it, and I was so let down, and you don't get any cake either. So um, ah. there you go. Hmm. You know, I, I think I I know I mentioned when we did our panel at Broadway Con that this was one of the shows I was looking forward to most. Uh, and that was just based on, uh, you know, what little I'd heard about the subject matter and the fact that Deborah Jo Rupp was in it. Um, so but, yeah, I'm I'm really surprised. I just assumed that it was going to be more of a drama. So that is really interesting. I'm seeing it on Wednesday and I guess uh, I'll, you know, I'll report back on my thoughts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As I, yeah, as I said, a lot of, uh, you know, a number of friends who have seen it really enjoyed it. And, and I, you know, I enjoyed her performance, but I was just looking for more. Yeah. I looked it up while you were giving your review, uh, Jan. Uh, her dad is uh, former Senator Pete Brunstetter, who is a North Carolina state senator, not oh. a, uh, and he supported the De- Defense of Marriage Defense of Marriage Act, also known as Amendment One, which defines marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, and he has since left to work for a large pharmaceutical firm, uh, so he is no longer a state senator. But this is—it's interesting. Uh, uh, that there's so much out there about uh, Becca writing this thing as uh, in opposition to her dad. So it must make for good Thanksgivings. So uh, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. Except, that, except that there's a lot of sympathy uh, right. for the, the character who feels that this would go against her conscience. And so, um, and I'm not saying that those people should be betrayed, portrayed as villains or, uh, you know, uh, unnecessarily so. But I think because she, uh, of her dad, and, and there must be real affection between her and her father, because there's real affection that goes in the creation, uh, that went into the creation of this character. And, uh, so she comes across as a lot more sympathetic than I think other playwrights might have made her. Well, and you know, uh, I have I have, again, I haven't seen it yet, but I find it interesting that it was written uh, from the standpoint of that uh, the character uh, Della, you said her name is. Mm-hmm. That she has a, a a very close and long lasting relationship with the with the woman who asked for the. The, to her to make yes. the cake, yes. Where, you know, I mean, it could would have been might have been a very different story if the uh, if it was just some stranger, you know, some strange unknown right. yeah. gay gay person <laughs> who who right. came to her and said, you know, uh, and, and 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 the stories that have been in the in the news, I think, you know, were were more along those lines. It wasn't, you know, right. some someone's god's daughter or or best you know or or someone's good friend so that's an interesting um twist i think that that runs it to it although the she doesn't know until of the the request for the cake that the uh goddaughter is uh, a lesbian so right yeah so 
So the uh, Becca Brunstetter and her dad, Peter Brunstetter, you know, fathers and daughters, it's always a complicated, good uh, basis for drama and theatrical writing and things like that, because uh, sometimes you just have to write a play about daddy. Oh, you're on a roll today. (laughs) So Michael... You got down to the Vineyard Theater to, uh, well, actually down to the uh, Signature Center where the Vineyard Theater's production of Daddy is playing. So why don't you tell us about Daddy? I will, but first let me say you have become a master of the segue. I know. <laughs> but I, I practice all week. Jan, Jan sends me her list early in the week, and it's all I do is think about it. <laughs> um, you were actually uh, – not wrong in the first thing you said, because this is actually a co-production of the new group and the Vineyard Theater at the Pershing Square Signature Center. So that's a mouthful that you start off with. This is Daddy. Um, the title is in quotes, uh, which hmm. relates to the content. Uh, and it is subtitled A Melodrama by Jeremy O'Harris. And um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I, I, I had very, very, very negative feelings about it. But I will hmm. say, first of all, I am really glad that before I saw this uh, play, uh, that just a few months ago, I saw a wonderful, excellent, very, very gripping and thought-provoking play by Jeremy O'Harris at down at New York Theatre Workshop, and that was called Slave Play. Right. I'm really glad I saw that first because if, because that proved to me that this is an extremely talented person, and I don't know um, the explanation for Daddy, which I think was just basically pretentious nonsense. Um, as Peter Felicia has, has commented on the uh, what else have you got for us phenomenon, where uh, a playwright will have a production of a show, a play, and that will be a big success. And a uh, big critical and you know and or box office success, and then um, you know the the various producers and theaters come to the playwright and say, "What else have you got?" Uh, assuming that there might be something ready to go, uh, you know, another play, another script that's ready to go that's in a you know in a drawer somewhere, um, and usually there is, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> that the play in the drawer is ready to is ready to go. Uh, and I would say in this case, not. Uh, although I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's so much a case of being unfinished. In this case, it's just kind of a kind of a really big pretentious mess it's about daddy is about um this uh fellow this artist named franklin played by ronald pete who um meets an a very famous and wealthy art collector named andre played by alan cumming and uh the first thing we see is that alan uh, that that andre has brought franklin back to his incredibly beautiful home in Bel Air in Los Angeles and California, uh, a home which is filled with magnificent artworks aside from the architectural magnificence of the, of the, the, the home itself. And uh, we're even told that I think he has a room full of Basquiat's. Uh, so, you know, not one Basquiat, mind you, but a room full of them. So this is somebody who is very, very, very well off and really, really famous. So um, we see this seduction, if you will, of of Franklin by Andre. And uh, it um, just kind of 
immediately takes some very kinky turns. And uh, pretty soon, Franklin is living there very soon. And um, to make a long story blessedly short, uh, the uh, well, the the major complication is that Franklin's mother eventually shows up. Played by Charlene Woodard, uh, uh, her role is Zora, the, the mother's name, and the 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 uh, the bulk of the play is kind of a tug of war between uh, the mother and Andre for the 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 soul and I guess body of Franklin, um, but uh, and I think there's a lot of really interesting uh, there's a lot of essential interest in that dynamic uh of a you know of a of a mother coming to cut the kind of like try to maybe rescue her adult son you know i mean you know uh, franklin is a full adult he's not a minor you know he, he he's able to make his own decisions but i guess she thinks this is a tremendously unhealthy relationship and there's certainly a, enough reason for her to think that from the evidence um so that is what's basically going on, but there's all this other stuff, these other characters who are very, very quirky and annoying, and also there is a, there is a Greek chorus in this show. Now, I don't know. I think if you are going to use a Greek chorus in a modern-day show, you really have to make sure that there's a, a reason for them to be there and that they're contributing to the action rather than just making the whole thing look pretentious and silly. Um, I'm afraid the latter is is the case uh, here. I, I, Although there were some... Um, some compelling moments in it, mostly involving the scenes between the mother and Franklin and and Andre. Um, there was a lot of just really silly, pretentious nonsense, and it would also the play was overlong. It was uh, about two hours and fifty minutes mm. with with two intermissions and that was not necessary uh, uh the two intermissions i found particularly unnecessary i'm not sure why um they did that there's a quite a fabulous set um w- including uh, a uh a, a, a stage length pool uh and by the way uh i don't think there's any uh, well maybe when you buy tickets they tell you but there is a splash zone uh so if you're if you're concerned about that don't sit in the first couple of rows um but i you know, i mean i i mean honestly i hate to say i wouldn't advise going to see it anyway so uh, so uh i can't say you know go see it and don't sit in the splash zone i i, I guess i would just say that maybe this one can be skipped uh, and we'll hope for better uh, the next time around for Jeremy O'Harris and hope the next one is a lot closer to the quality of slave play than to daddy. Uh, so maybe if you had, uh, instead of gone into the Romulus Linney Courtyard Theater at the Pershing Square Signature Center, you had gone to the Alice Griffin Jewel Box Theater at the Pershing <laughs> Square Signature Center. You could have seen uh, Bozeman and Lena by Athol Fugard. I, Athol? Athol Fugard? I, I get that confused. Me too. So, all right. Excellent. So, uh, Jan, you got to see this. W- would Michael have been better served to go into <laughs> your theater... 
And did you see each other at the concession stand getting popcorn? <laughs> no. Um, I, I'm disappointed to hear that about Daddy. I'm going to see it in a couple of weeks. I have tickets to see it in a couple of weeks. and I'm You could third act it. <laughs> right. <Third> acted, yes. Because <laughs> like, cause like Michael, I, I was really intrigued by Slave Play. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Um, Boseman and Lena is an early uh, play by Ethel uh, uh, Fugard. Uh, and uh, it was first performed in 1969 um, in South Africa with the playwright playing one of the characters. And then a couple of years, maybe just a year later, it moved uh, here to the Old Circle in the Square. And the two uh, main characters, there are only three characters in the play, the two main characters were then played by James Earl Jones and Ruby Dee. And I saw that production and it's one of those productions that I really treasure having uh, seen. And so I was going to just let this one go by. And then I saw that it had been cast with Sar and Gauja and Zainab Ja. And that alone was, for me, reason to go see it. People may remember Saw from uh, Fela where he was the title character in Fela. He was also recently in uh, Lynn Nottage's Malima's Tale, where he played an elephant, interestingly enough. And Zainab Ja has done a couple of things, but the thing that stood out for me was in uh, Eclipse, um, uh, Denai Guerrera's uh, play about... uh, uh, women who uh, were held captive in the Liberian civil wars. She played this really strong uh, rebel fighter. And so the idea of these two uh, uh, really dynamic actors with uh, African backgrounds themselves playing these these characters was really exciting for me, uh, the prospect of it. And the play is not an easy play. It is a, it's about two days in the life of this couple who are categorized as colored under South Africa's apartheid system, meaning they're sort of mixed race. And they have been thrown out of the shanty town where they lived by government forces who came in and just bulldozed uh, the area. And they are wandering uh, around the countryside trying to find a place to live. And their discussions with one another about their lives, about uh, race, about their relationship, it uh, is not an easy play to sit through, but these were such dynamic, dynamic performances that they didn't they didn't erase my memory of James Earl Jones and Ruby D. what could, but they were just really worth seeing on their own. And they were a real visceral reminder of what it is to be a displaced person, to be a refugee, to be a, a person without a home because of forces that you can't control. Um, and and the oppression that you 
suffer in some of these uh, really terrible regimes that, thank goodness, apartheid is gone, but there are many as we all know, regimes around the country that have made it very difficult for people to live and have caused many of them to become like Bosman and Lena, uh, refugees. And I just found this really, really powerful. It's directed by Yael Farber, uh, a woman who herself is South African and uh, just really, really powerfully done, I thought. All right. So uh, Boseman and Lena uh, at the Signature Center is part of the uh, residency of uh, Ethel Fugard, uh, and it has just been extended through March 24th, so you have a couple of weeks to uh, go see it. You have 14 days, two weeks left to go see that, so get over and check that out. Uh, to wrap up this morning, Michael, you saw a Jewish joke at uh, Theater Row at the Lion Theater a little bit down the block from uh, Signature Center. So tell us about that. Yeah, I went to this because uh, some years ago I went to the uh, Cabaret and Performance Conference at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center um, really quite quite a few years ago now that I think about it. And that was my one time at that uh that event. And there were some really talented people there. And I remember meeting this guy named Phil Johnson. Uh, and he just seemed to be really, really talented as a comedian. Uh, and I wanted, I was looking forward to, to following his, uh, you know, his career, but I've kind of lost track of him a bit over the years. And and then suddenly I see his name attached to this show at Theater Row called A Jewish Joke, written by Marnie Friedman and Phil Johnson, starring Phil Johnson. He it's a it's a one character show. He plays a character named Bernie Lutz. And uh, the setting is a writer's bungalow, MGM Studios, Los Angeles, California, 1950. And this is a really, I'm happy to say, really well-written and superbly acted one-person show about the blacklist. The, you know, the the witch hunts, the communist witch hunts, McCarthyism. Um, uh, to make a – well, to just to um, synopsize it, at the start of the show, uh, Bernie is in his office and he's really riding high. He's about uh, to have a premiere of a new movie that he co-wrote that's, uh, that's premiering that night. And he's um, got several projects in the fire, including uh, one movie with Danny Kaye and another with the Marx Brothers. And he and his uh, writing partner are – they're really flying high. But then um, a series of phone calls – start to come in and uh, and it all starts to devolve and unravel because he and his partner um primarily his partner but but both of them have been mentioned in red channels which was this infamous infamous newsletter or paper or whatever you call it that, that would would name names of of suspected communists and and just having your name appear in it could be enough to destroy your career. It was a horrendously horrible, awful time. Uh, anyone who knows anything about that that period 
it was just the the low point of morality in Hollywood, and uh, you know, unfortunately, we we uh, today we still have parallels to it. So it's uh, I think important for this story to keep being told. Um, anyway, um, Phil did a, a magnificent job of acting it and co-writing it. I, I you know it it, it can't. Uh, needless to say, to, to hold the stage by yourself for an hour and a half um, is is really something. Uh, that's that's even more time, <laughs> you know, than uh, than Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge did in in each of their respective shows. So um, he he just um, he managed to do it because the, his emotional transitions and his his levels, uh, you know, his his, uh, his face is so expressive and his voice. He did a, a perfect. It sounded to me like a perfect accent, uh, you know, I, I guess New York Jewish accent that this Bernie Lutz guy would have. Uh, and I, I, I was very impressed with it and I was really glad that I came and I do. I do hope that this story keeps being told uh, in one form or another because it's just it's just chilling and very instructive to to our uh, you know to our lives and our democracy and and the way things work and innocent until proven guilty and guilt by association and all of that horrible stuff. I'm so excited that you that you like this because I'm going Tuesday night. Oh, good. And and I was going back and forth, and I was thinking, I don't know. I am interested in that period, but I don't know. It's a one man show. I don't know. I don't know. So now now you've got me excited and revved up to go. I think I think you will really like it. It's maybe a tiny bit longer than it needed to be but but it wasn't you know but just a little bit so uh if the only the only thing i would recommend is maybe just a little bit of judicious cutting but it's still really really worthwhile for his performance and the and the writing and the lots of um information you know mm-hmm. uh, uh for people who don't know uh, uh, all the details of the of the witch hunts, you know, just the mm-hmm. historical nuggets and and things to just that that cause you to kind of, you know, your jaw to drop when you hear uh, the the way people were treated then and 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 the you know the the lives that were destroyed just really really awful. So this is the time of year when uh, uh, when listeners hate me the most. Um, because I complain about having to go to the theater every single night. Uh, uh, but everything is, you know, opening and I, 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 and I, 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 we have lots of, uh, people that I'm sure reach out to Jan and Michael as well that are like, yeah, I'm doing this thing and it's, you know, way down in Brooklyn or Queens or up in the Bronx or something like that. And I said, really? We we have twenty Broadway openings. We have, you know, fifty major off Broadway openings, and this is our schedule for much of March and April. Is the theater mm-hmm. every single night is somewhere in Midtown or you know in Chelsea or something like that for the off Broadway plays. And and Michael, you you have time to cut out for three different uh, upcoming cabarets. Uh, so they must be very, very important to you. So tell us about those that are coming up. <laughs> well, yes, they are. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, for what it's worth, I, I think I literally have something every day, uh, some kind of show from now until I think maybe 
April 15th. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and we theoretically haven't even reached absolute prime time. For, exactly for all of these spring openings so i mean of course it's wonderful it's it's just you, you know you have to um pace yourself and and hope you and try to give full attention to everything and not give short shrift so yes um first of all uh i was at the green room 42 last night for the handmaid's musical <laughs> which was a, huh. a sort of Parody of The Handmaid's Tale, and uh, really just in, in, like in forbidden Broadway fashion, and it was silly, and the audience loved it. And I went primarily because um, a friend of mine, uh, old friend of mine, Bill Coyne, was in it, who I've mentioned before, uh, and he, I, I, I just really love to to see him perform and hear him sing because he's got an amazing voice, and he and the rest of the cast did a superb job. The, you know, as we've said many, many times, the level of of talent, uh, performing talent in this city is just mind boggling. And, you know, just when you think, um, well, you, that, you know, uh, there can't be enough to go around <laughs> and, you know, you, eventually you've got to see a show that has people in it that really aren't good. It just, just didn't really happen. So, um, so the Green Room 42 is a uh, is one of the newest wonderful venues for uh, concert cabaret type shows. And coming up um, this Saturday, the 16th, we have the Drinkwater Brothers, whom I've mentioned. I uh, sort of discovered them a, a couple of years ago. They are now finishing up their senior year at Wagner College on Staten Island. They're 21 years old, identical twins, and they do – really really fabulous shows they both play guitar and i think they the, they they both play piano sometimes and they can just do it all as far as broadway rock folk blues jazz uh and they uh just very recently they did a spectacularly successful sold out show at don't tell mama and now they're coming to the green room 42 this saturday um with special guests including john dossett uh tony nominee john dossett and broadway veteran Teresa mccarthy and uh cabaret uh artist amy beth williams so i think that this is going to be really something if you um if you are around on Saturday, the 16th at 7 p.m., uh, it's a night before uh, St. Patrick's Day, so you can uh, <laughs> you don't have to worry about recovering from that uh, <laughs> if you're planning to participate in those festivities. Um, this is going to be a really wonderful show, and I think that uh, that they're they're really going to you're going to hear from these, these guys in the future. And so you can maybe get in on the ground floor and say, I was there when, and then, um, uh, not too far into the future, uh, Two more shows coming up at the Green Room 42 on April 17 and May 15. Uh, Steven Brinberg is bringing his Simply Barbara show back. Um, and uh, I think they're going to be not identical programs, but both celebrating the 50th anniversary of the, the movie – of Hello Dolly, uh, which of course starred Barbara Streisand, uh, and I know Stephen's going to have two separate guests for for these shows that they're not uh, completely said yet, but we'll let you know about that. And um, the I've always said that the fact that a, a film of Hello Dolly with Barbara Streisand exists is still something that I 
<laughs> I can't, you know, I still have trouble like wrapping my mind around it, even though I've seen it countless times. Uh, the the casting uh, when it happened seemed very bizarre to many people, mostly because uh, Barbara Streisand was 25 when she was signed for the film, and I think 25 or 26 when she filmed it. Uh, so there was the the age disparity of, of a you know her playing a character who is supposed to be considerably older, but uh, you know I mean she was she was already. Uh, arguably the the biggest star or about to become the biggest star in in movies and funny girls cemented that so that's why she got the role and uh, I think that time has been kind uh, to the to that performance I, I think that initially you know people were disconcerted about the 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 age difference but then um, now in retrospect we're able to look back and and, and appreciate uh, the performance for what it, you know, for, for what she did bring to it, including her amazing voice and what at the time was really, really superb comic acting, something that she kind of veered away from in, in more recent years. Um, but Steven Brinberg, uh, is, is a, uh, it's, it's fair to say a world famous, uh, Barbara Streisand tribute artist. He's done his show, not only all over this country, but also in, uh, in, England and Australia. In fact, he's going back to London um, in in uh, just a couple of weeks before he uh, before he shows up at the green room. Um, so, but the dates of the green room again are April seventeen and May fifteen. Uh, and, and the third um, cabaret, uh, well, it's not exactly cabaret show uh, that I wanted to call your attention to, and I'll mention it again when we get closer, is on Monday, April 1st, at the Loft at City Winery, um, my pal uh, Dan Ruth is bringing his critically acclaimed uh, one-man show, A Life Behind Bars, to that venue. Um, he's already won almost every possible uh, cabaret and, and bistro award for it, and it's it's a huge success and he's bringing it back this is all about his um his life uh his experience as a uh, as a bartender which he still is uh that's what the life behind bars references it's not to prison it's to uh being a bartender and he um is uh, a bartender who is also you know who has struggled with alcoholism and is now you know recovering and and on the wagon for years but this is about a time when he was not on the wagon uh and it gets it's really a lot of it is hilarious but a lot of it is really very moving and kind of harrowing so i would highly recommend that show that's coming up on monday april 1st at the loft at city winery um michael are you going to jeremy jordan at town hall I am, yes. Oh, thank you. Please, yes. Tomorrow night, Monday the 11th, Jeremy Jordan with Seth Rudetsky at Town Hall. These uh, I, I reported on, um, I think, the last one with, with uh, where Seth hosted Kelly O'Hara. And these are wonderful shows because aside from this, the performance aspect, this, the singing, um, this, this wonderful informal setup of Seth just sitting down and chatting with these people and – uh, and you know about their lives and and all their 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 anecdotes of their of their accomplishments and their their previous appearances. He uh, he's a really great interviewer and he really brings out um, the best in people. And you just you just feel like you get to know um, 
these these amazing artists like Jeremy Jordan and Kelly O'Hara, you honestly feel like you get to know them a little bit on a personal one-to-one basis. So I could not recommend it more. And it is at the town hall, and the tickets, as I've said repeatedly, are far less expensive than you would pay for any Broadway show. But the entertainment level and value is really just right up there. All right. So that wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you or Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in that way. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can get finer podcasts, you can get Broadway Radio. Contact information for Jan, for Michael, for me, uh, can be found at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today. All right, Peter, what do we have for uh, an answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question was, she appeared in a musical in the early 60s where she supported one of the most famous entertainers of all time. The song in which they duetted became a popular song of its time and is still occasionally heard today. Before this happened, though, she had been married to a composer who would later write a big 60s hit which probably narrowly missed winning the Tony for Best Musical. Who's she? Her legendary co-star, the name of her ex-husband, and the musical that he composed. Well, what we're talking about is Paula Stewart, who is in the musical Wildcat with Lucille Ball. And they introduced the song, Hey, Look Me Over. It was the opening, well, almost the opening number of the show. Uh, It certainly seemed like the opening number was one that counted. But once upon a time, before uh, Wildcat, she was married to Burt Bacharach, who wrote Promises, Promises. Uh, And that's a bit of a surprise to many of us who uh, may not have known uh, that uh, she had that history with Burt Bacharach. Um, And I I often wonder if indeed she thought, hmm, we got divorced a little too soon because um, it was <laughs> it was before he really hit it big. Anyway, um, we've been talking about Tony Janicki a lot um, in the last few weeks because he's really been on the ball and uh, has uh, got the answer right away. Well, this week it was Carrie Winslow who was the first to answer, beating out the seemingly invincible Tony Janicki by eight minutes. And Jack Leshner quickly followed. So that's how it played out this week. Those three got it. Now for this week. One of the most famous pieces of music uh, is heard in Act One of the 1961 musical A Family Affair, and it is identical to a famous piece of music you hear in Act Two of Sweeney Todd. In A Family Affair, it begins the piece of music. In Sweeney Todd, it ends the piece of music. So what is the famous piece of music, everybody's heard it a million times, that you hear at the beginning of Family Fair? Uh, family affair and uh, towards the end of Sweeney Todd. Hmm. Okay. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, on behalf of Peter Felicia, Jan Simpson, Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye bye. Bye. We share, but now.
That's what I.